Tim, and how many of you, show of hands, either streamed online or watched Easter Sunday last week here at Bellar Church? I just want to see, and as we look around, I love this. I love the fact that every week we have people who weren't here the week before. And that might be a weird thing for a senior pastor to say, right? Like you would guess for a senior pastor to say, like, you weren't here last week? No, I love that. I love the rhythm of our lives that we intersect in ways that are unique to that week. In fact, this is the last Sunday that this collection of people will be together. Every week is different. And we can get into routines, we can get into habits, we can get into these things of like, oh yeah, it's just on a Sunday and we get into routines. But the fact of the matter is that we have a God that is present with us, that wants to show up right now in your life, in this place, and do a work that only God can do. And it's up to us to have open hearts to that work or not. And if you're joining us online or if you're here in person, I'm, I've been praying for you. But looking back to last week, I just got to thank our members and our volunteers and all those who served. If you in any way during Holy Week, so that's Palm Sunday, Monday Thursday, Good Friday, Stations of the Cross, Easter Sunday, before sunrise all the way through the day. If you served in any capacity, even if you reached down and you picked up trash, like, if you participated in making this a warm, welcome environment, would you stand up right now? We weren't planning on doing this, but would you stand up in the moment? And I want to thank you, and we as a church want to thank you for your leadership, your service, your hospitality. Thank you, thank you, thank you. God bless you. Well, and as you grab a seat, you know, we started a brand new sermon series called Transformed, and we're taking a look at seven different moments where Jesus, after he is risen from the grave, he appears to different disciples Sometimes individually, sometimes in a group as large as 500. And when he does so, he absolutely transforms those people in ways that they've never been transformed before. And the stuff that Jesus did back then, he does now. And so we show up in this moment, we're praying, God, do it again. Transform us, transform our hearts. And as we open up God's word to see how God met people, even in the midst, last week we talked about, even in the midst of being overwhelmed, God can transform us in profound ways. Well, today, the question that I have for us before we go to the text is this. Where is God and what does God do when we are going the wrong way? I asked the question last week, how many of you have ever driven through a stop sign? If you remember that, I'm going to ask the question this week, how many of you have ever been going the wrong way down the road on the freeway and you had no idea in your ways, your Google Maps is like reroute, 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 and you're just, you know, you keep going the wrong way. You don't know it until you realize, and some of us, we go for miles, some of us go for hours. Some of us have gone for days or weeks or months, years, even decades, feeling like we've been living life going the wrong way. And maybe some of you are here today and you're like, I'm here because I've tried everything else and I'm desperate for hope. And I feel like my life has gone the wrong way. It's gone a different way than I hoped for, a different way than I intended, a different way than I dreamed about in my resources, in, in, in my finances, in my relationships, in my work. Where's God? What does God do when we're going the wrong way? Well, I've got good news for us. 
And it's not my good news, it's the good news of Jesus. So would you open up your Bibles to Luke 24. Uh, If you didn't bring a Bible, no problem, that red book in front of you, or if you're in the front row, there's a little cubby behind your leg. Uh, That red book is our gift to you if you don't own a Bible. And we're going to Luke 24, verses 13 through 35. It's on page 860 in your pew Bible. And if you're online, welcome. Some of you are traveling, some of you are sick. I was officiating a wedding last night up in Los Olivos, one of our members, and I see even some people here right now who weren't planning on being here, out-of-town wedding. I love it. You're like, I got to be back at church Sunday morning. And so wherever you find yourself this day, know that God knows exactly where you are. He loves you. He adores you. And let me read Luke 24, 13 through 35. Now on that same day, this is Easter Sunday, Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he, Jesus, said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They, the disciples, stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He, this is Jesus, asked them, What things? They replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning. And when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they didn't see him. Then Jesus said to them, oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He, Jesus, interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as he was going along. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us because it is now almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he, Jesus, went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while we were talking with us on the road, while he was opening up the scriptures to us? That same hour, they got up, returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, the Lord is risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. This, my friends, is the reading of God's word. 
All right, so again, last week, if you missed it, you can go online wherever Apple Podcasts are played, and you can listen to how God, through Jesus, appeared to Mary Magdalene, which was absolutely countercultural in the first century. If you were with us last week, I shared that in the first century, especially in a Jewish culture, women were not considered reliable eyewitnesses. And sadly, they were not even allowed to give testimony in court. And so the fact that the first eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus was a singular, solitary, alone woman proves, among many other proofs, that Jesus rose from the grave. Because if you were making up a story about a guy that rose from the grave in the first century culture, you would not say that he appeared to a woman. And it absolutely transformed her life and her heart in profound ways. And it transforms our perspective of women in ways that are utterly broken in society. Jesus says, lift them up. I have given them gifts. I have empowered them to be leaders in my church and in my family, male or female, of all people. I want to use all people for my glory. And then he appears to two individuals, one who is named and one who is not. Some scholars believe that this actually is a married couple that Jesus meets on the road to Emmaus. One of the clues for that, perhaps, scholars say, is that one of the names that is given, Cleopas, that name comes up a few chapters earlier. In fact, uh, when Jesus was crucified at the base of the cross, there was his mother Mary, there was Mary Magdalene, and it says that there was another Mary, the wife of Cleopas. So perhaps this second appearance that Jesus has, uh, he shows up to these uh, disciples and they're walking to Emmaus. And in the Greek language it says, the distance from here to there is 60 stadia, roughly seven miles. They're walking the wrong way. Jesus said, I'm going to rise from the grave, so stay in Jerusalem. I'm going to defeat death. Even death can't hold me back, so stay in Jerusalem. Three days have gone by. Even though they hear reports that Jesus could be alive, they start heading the wrong way. And it's important to know that sometimes followers of Jesus can begin to go the wrong way. And maybe some of you have been following Jesus for a decade, two decades, three years. You are not immune from beginning to walk away and to walk without Jesus. You see, they were beginning to live as if Jesus was dead. They were beginning to live as if Jesus wasn't who he really said he was. They were beginning to live in such a way that they forgot who they were, what their worth was in Christ, and what their purpose was. They forgot all of those things, and they began to walk the wrong way. And on this seven-mile journey, I love the fact that Jesus meets them while they're going the wrong way. He doesn't wait for them to come back. He doesn't say, that's too far out of my way to meet you while you're going the wrong way. He meets them and he meets us when we're going the wrong way. And that can look so differently for all of us. But whenever we begin to live as if Jesus is dead, 
as if he is different than who he says he is, if we begin to forget who we are and our worth and our purpose, we begin to, and this is truth out all of Scripture, we begin to, to hold on to, to latch on to the narratives of the culture of which we live. And so you see it in the Old Testament where they begin to forget who God was, and they begin to worship other gods, they forgot their identity, they began to get distracted. And we see it today in our culture where the dominant narrative of modern American Western society is consumerism. You've been told that you are, you're not just a person, you are a consumer. You are what you eat, you are what you wear, you are what you do, you are your experiences, you are your zip code, you are what you drive. You are the level in your bank account, and we buy into those lies. And actually what we do is we begin to take that narrative and we layer it upon our understanding of God. And what we do is we begin to treat God not for who God says he is, but we think he's like this magical fairy Santa Claus commodity up in the sky. And what we do is we reduce who he is in our heart and our mind And he's working in our midst and we don't even see him. We begin to treat the church like a vending machine. And we put a little bit in and we want a lot out. And as soon as it's broken, we kick it and we go to the next vending machine. Oh, I don't like the worship there. I don't like the preaching there. I don't like the temperature there. I don't like the color of the wood there. I don't like the drive there. I'm going to go to the next place. And what we do is we then treat each others simply as transactional relationships. We begin to ask, what's in it for me? We forget this life that Christ calls us to. So some of you, perhaps, in this moment, in this day, and I can fall into this as well, even though I've been following Jesus for 19 years, even though I've been a pastor for uh, nearly 15 years, even though I've been the senior pastor of this church for five years, I can begin to forget, and I can start going the wrong way. Relying on my own strengths, forgetting that everything I do has to come from a deep dependence upon him, fueled by the Holy Spirit. And so some of you, perhaps in this place, you're going the wrong way. And it might be so obvious to everyone around you and you yourself, you're caught up in addiction again. You're caught up in unhealthy relationships again. You're lying your way out of everything. You're trying to do this and you're trying to do that to earn other people's love and God's love and you're just falling flat on your back. But maybe for some of you, you're going the wrong way and it's so subtle that nobody notices it and you don't even notice it because on the surface, you're a good person. And you show up and you serve and you show up and you give and you show up and you pray and you show up and you worship. Well, the Apostle Paul says that there's actually a way that you can live your life where your identity and your worth and your purpose are grounded, not in who Christ is in your life, not through the grace that he gives you, but you build your whole life on your works and your deeds. So sometimes it's the wrongness and sometimes it's the moral superiority that means you're going the wrong way. And you've got a God that doesn't wag his finger at you. He doesn't condemn you. He doesn't chastise you. He meets you on the journey. And so the three things briefly that I have for us, if you're taking notes, some of you do it on paper, some of you do it on a phone, some of you have great memory, uh, three mnemonic 
things to, to recall later on. First, uh, it's every way. Second, everything. Third, every heart. So I've already said the first point, every way. Every way in your life, no matter if you're walking with Jesus or if you're walking without Jesus, God longs to meet you in the midst of it. And he wants to transform the direction of your life back to him. He wants to transform the direction of your heart back to him. He wants to transform the direction of your mind back to him. If you gave me your checkbook, well, we don't use checkbooks anymore. If you gave me your bank statements and your calendar, I would tell you what your heart, your mind, your soul, your body are aimed at. Where you spend your time, where you spend your resources, that's where you're headed. And regardless of what it is, Jesus says, I want to meet you in the midst of it and I want to transform it in such a profound way that it's going to give you life in life to the full. It's going to give you a joy and a peace and a security and a, and a significant sense of meaning and purpose in this world that nothing can give you. I'm going to meet you wherever you're going on your way, in every way possible. And I want to turn you, Jesus says, back to me. And that's why we as a church, we pray that the Holy Spirit would empower us to follow Jesus every day and everywhere with everyone. But two, everything I love the fact that Jesus, and open those Bibles back up, it says right here, I want to hear a little page turn and open it back up, Luke 24. It says, beginning with Moses and the prophets. That's in verse 27. Now, how many of you were uh, with us exactly five years ago when I was called to be the senior pastor and we spent 10 weeks on a sermon series called The Road to Amaze? How many of you were, were here back then? So I don't want to condense 10 weeks of sermons into uh, seven minutes. So you can go online and you can catch those messages if you'd like to. But what Jesus is doing right here in this moment, while they are downcast, while they're going the wrong way, he takes everything in Scripture. And he says, everything in Scripture is about me. And you've got to understand that in the first century, on that seven-mile walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus, the scriptures were the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. There was no Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, no first and second Corinthians. There was none in the New Testament. So when he says that all of the scriptures, Jesus says, point to me, how many of you have a hard time reading the Old Testament? Okay, half of you are not honest right now. I mean, I struggle with it. There's like bear maulings. You know that part? Like weird, you don't know that part? Oh, well, I guess you're not reading your Bible. No wonder you don't have a hard time with it. <laughs> so they have this understanding of Scripture, and their understanding of Scripture has caused them to completely miss who Jesus is all the things that they knew, and they knew Scripture a lot better than we know Scripture. As disciples, they lived and breathed Scripture. They memorized it. They had it written on their hearts. They knew it back and forward. When it says Moses, that's not just beginning with the life of Moses. You see, through the Spirit, God wrote through Moses' hand, Genesis, first book of the Bible, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers. So that's shorthand for saying the first five books and the prophets, all of Scripture. 
Jesus says, all of it points to me. Now, some of you, you've heard the stats that there's like 300 prophecies about the Messiah that Jesus fulfilled and, uh, you know, the astronomical improbability of just fulfilling 10 of those prophecies uh, is 1 to the 10th to the 37th power. Uh, The chances of filling all 300 is impossible, unless you're Jesus. But it's not just the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled that spoke to him. It's also the stories. Now, again, I would love for you to go back and listen to those messages, and you can see some of the stories and how they point to Jesus. But I want to just tell you just briefly a few. Uh, In Genesis 3, there's this amazing moment where the first humans, referred to as Adam and Eve, uh, they are disobedient to God about a tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so they choose their way rather than God's way, and they take and they eat. Uh, How many of you think that it was an apple? How many of you are like, I think it was a pomegranate. <laughs> How many of you are like, I don't care? <laughs> yes, good. So we have no idea the type of fruit. The fact is, is that they ate from this tree the knowledge of good and evil. And for the first time in human existence, they became self-absorbed. They began to be completely self-aware, not in like a self-awareness like I'm balanced in life, like a self-awareness of like, I'm naked and now I'm ashamed and I'm filled with disgrace and I'm going to hide from my partner. I'm going to hide from God. I'm going to hide from myself. And the first reaction that came out of disobedience was they covered themselves with fig leaves. Now what's so fascinating is that what happens next is that Jesus, who is the fullness of God, hasn't been born for however many years. Something is about to happen that God does that points directly to Jesus. You know what it is? The first sacrifice in the garden, God has to, as a response to the brokenness of humanity, has to kill an animal. Animals are killed all over the planet daily. We don't give thought to it. It's become just part of our existence. We're removed from it. We don't even think about it. I think God thought a lot about the first death of his beloved creation. And he loved humanity so much, the ones that were made in God's image, the only thing made in God's image. And he sacrifices an animal, and it literally says that God covers them in ways that they can't cover themselves and he covers them with something that had to die. I have no idea what Jesus said to those disciples on the way to Emmaus. But perhaps he said, my death covers you. All the things you do to try to cover over your shame, the things you do to cover over your not good enoughness, the things you cover over your past mistakes. Some of you, you cover with really good things, nice things, reputable things. You you cover it by giving, by showing up, by, by doing all these things for God. God says, you can't cover yourself. I have to cover you and it's going to take a sacrifice and only until you are covered in death can you truly live. And Jesus says that points to me. 
Maybe some of you know the story of uh, Joseph, how he was left for dead by his brothers. He's literally thrown into a pit. They leave him. They think he's dead. They betray him. He is then uh, sold into slavery. He then rises to power within the Egyptian empire. And he then has this amazing experience where he has dreams from God. And as a result, uh, a famine is diverted in terms of the devastation. And so the Egyptian country is thriving because they've prepared for the famine. But, but Joseph's family has not prepared for it. So they hear word that far off in Egypt there's these resources. And so they come humbly to Egypt and all of a sudden, they see and they realize, oh, it's our brother. Our brother that we betrayed. Our brother that we left for dead. Our brother who now has the power to judge us. Our brother that now has the power to kill us. What's he going to say? Joseph says, what you have intended for harm God is used for good. Come, live, thrive, be part of the family. I have no idea what Jesus said to the disciples on the road to Emmaus on that seven-mile journey, but perhaps he said in the same way that brothers betrayed a brother, I as your brother have been betrayed by you. You've left me for dead. And I've defeated death and I've risen and I have all authority to judge, I have all authority to condemn, and yet what you intended for harm, God has used for good. Come, thrive with me. There's this amazing moment, too, which we'll get to, where it's not just the prophecies, it's not just the stories, uh, it's not just the people how Jesus is referred to as the second Adam, how he is the true Moses, how he is the true King David. Ruth points to him. Deborah points to him. Uh, Rahab points to him. All these people point to Jesus, but even things point to Jesus. The, the manna in the wilderness points to Jesus. The ram caught in the thicket, if you know that story with Abraham and Isaac, point to Jesus. The Passover lamb point to Jesus. Even the elements in the Passover story, they all point to Jesus. All the elements in the tabernacle story, they all point to Jesus. The rod, the rock, the water that comes out of it in the Moses, story, that, that, that all points to Jesus. It is there all around. And these disciples, like me, perhaps like you, have missed it. We find it weird. We find it outdated. We find it antiquated. We find it boring. And Jesus says, there is so much in the Hebrew Scriptures. Everything points to me, and I want you to see it. I want to transform your understanding of these amazing truths. But it's not just the story. It's not just the things. It's not just the people. It's also some things that are said. I want to show you something. Open up your Bibles to Isaiah 50. If you're online with us, again, we're in the New Revised Standard Version, Isaiah 50. It surely is not written by Jesus. However, we believe that all of Scripture is God-breathed, that for Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books of the Bible, uh, written by human hands, but through the inspiration and authority of the Holy Spirit. So here you've got this prophet Isaiah, like over a thousand years before Jesus is born, before he lives, before he dies, uh, the prophet Isaiah writes this, Isaiah 50, 
And I'm simply going to read verses 4 through 7. Listen to this. The Lord God has given me the tongue of a teacher that I may know how to sustain the weary with a word. Morning by morning he wakens, wakens my ear to listen as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I did not turn backward. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who pulled out the beard. I did not hide my face from insult and spitting. The Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. You can brush right over that. You can kind of check out, you can zone out, you can say, wow, that's some strong language, pulling, wow, that's strong, rich, rich language. Or you can listen to what Jesus says, this is about me. When was Isaiah beaten? Never. When did Isaiah have his beard ripped off his face? Never. When did he live such a perfect life that he never rebelled? Never. Jesus says, this is about me. Because I have a tongue like a teacher. I have words that care for the weary, Jesus says. Jesus says, I alone lived the perfect life. I never turned backward. I was always on the path that God had for me. I always lived for the will of the Father. I allowed them to beat my back. I allowed them to rip my beard off my face. We, we don't think about that. We forget that. I allowed people to spit in my face, Jesus says. And yet my God is with me. Therefore, I'm going to set my face like flint. I'm going to go toe-to-toe with death. I'm going to go to the cross, not as a victim, but I'm going to go victorious because he has vindicated me. You know, I think one of the reasons why they didn't recognize him on the road to Emmaus is because of how ugly he was. In fact, Isaiah 53, it says... The Messiah is going to have an appearance uh, that wouldn't be beautiful. In fact, Isaiah 53 says that his face would be such that, that we would turn our faces away from him. Now, this is not how we kind of portray Jesus, you know, as this long, flowing, you know, hair and steely face and like 15-pack abs, you know. <laughs> just massive Rambo of a Jesus, right, who's just gorgeous, Scripture says that he was ugly. Not because he was born ugly, but because we made him ugly. In his resurrection body, yes, he had the scars of the nails through his hands, the scars through his feet. But what do scars look like of a beard ripped off one's face? So bad that actually in Revelation 5, when John has this vision of Jesus, 
He says, and then I saw the lamb. That's Jesus, who's the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He says, and then I saw a lamb. And he doesn't describe it as a lamb that's like fluffy and cuddly and nice and perfectly manicured and trim, you know, fresh from the barber. He says, I saw the lamb that was slaughtered. It's been said that the only human-made thing in heaven are the scars that he bears. In the new heavens and new earth, Scripture says that we will be without loss or brokenness. In fact, it says that we, as God's creation through faith and trust in Jesus, we won't have any scars. No physical scars, no emotional scars. The things that have been done to us will be absolutely healed and transformed. And the only scars that we're going to see in heaven in the presence of God are the scars that Jesus bears. A reminder that because of his stripes, Isaiah 53 says, we are healed, that we are healed because of his wounds that come about because of our transgressions. You know what that means? That Jesus, he says, not only does everything in Scripture point to me, he says, everything in your life I can transform. Everything in your life I can redeem. Everything in your life is the perfect fertile ground of which my resurrection truth and the seeds of which can be planted into where newness of life can spring up. There is nothing in your life, no disappointment, no disease, no brokenness, no broken dream where Jesus says, I can't show up in the midst of and transform. That doesn't mean he's going to transform it the way you want it to be transformed. But he wants you to see that there's nothing in all of creation that can't be transformed as a result of his love. And still, these disciples, they didn't see, they didn't recognize. Leads to my last point, every heart. Open those Bibles back up, take a look. It says they invited him in, not because they recognized that it was Jesus, but because they were simply doing what people did in the first century. They were just being hospitable. Take a look. Verse 28, Luke 24, as they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on, but they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us. Why? Because it is almost evening and the day is now nearly over. They still don't get it, and yet they invite him in because that's what people did back then. And then this amazing transformative moment happens. For the first time, the church celebrates communion the Lord's Supper. Jesus takes bread, borrowed from the Passover meal and the long, rich journey of that and how it all points to Jesus and then the breaking and blessing of the bread as he gives it to them and as he pours out the cup, their eyes are opened. They see that it's Jesus. Even the best sermon in the history of humanity didn't convince them but it was the power of the Holy Spirit in the midst of that act that opened up their eyes. And what did they do? Immediately, they got up and they marched back to Jerusalem, another seven miles on dirt roads, no aid stations, no camelbacks, no electrolyte pills. Literally, they, all they could do was go back to Jerusalem, the place where Jesus says, I will meet you there, I will be there. And they went back to Jerusalem knowing that they could die. 
You see, the disciples were terrified that they were next, that they would be crucified. And in that moment, because Jesus transformed the way of their life, he transformed their perspective of Scripture, uh, he transformed their hearts, they ran back to Jerusalem, and they knew that even death itself wasn't anything for the match of God's love. And right now in this place, Jesus wants to meet you regardless of what way you were going in life. For him, it is not out of his way to meet you on your way. And he wants you to know that everything in Scripture points to him. And you and I, we've gotten lazy in our loving relationship with him. And we, we put this down. We put it away. We read other things. And he says, it's because you don't realize it all points to me. And of course, you're not going to understand it. Get together in community. Join a group. Join a life group. Join a class. Do a devotional online. Study together. Ask questions. There's no bad questions. But let's go into this together. And he longs that all hearts would be set ablaze by the power of his love. And that you would know that there's no one in your life or your life included whose heart Jesus doesn't want. And so in humility, you can look around. You can never, ever say again, that person is too far gone for God. You can never ever say again that, that that situation, that thing can't be transformed for good. Never ever again can you say, no, that, that heart is too hard for God to soften. No, Jesus says, this is what I do. It's not what you do. This is what I do. And you know how I'm going to do it? I'm going to give you my spirit, the same spirit that rose me from the grave, to empower you to be my people, to be my witnesses, to be my ambassadors, that no matter which way you're going, you would walk with me that you would open up the scriptures and see me in the midst of it and it would remind you of who you are, your worth, your purpose in life and then in all things that you would see the resurrection power and the reconciliation that can happen even in the midst of the darkest things in this world. I know a pastor that whenever he goes to a new city, he gets an Uber and he says, can you take me to the worst part of town? Say what? You know, they turn over. Brave Uber drivers, you know, they drive the worst part of town. And the pastor says, in response to, why are we going there? I know that God is here, this pastor says. And I'm going to look around and I'm going to see all the brokenness, the mess. And I'm going to know that God is here and God wants to do a thing and he wants to transform a thing. And I want to join him in it and I'm going to begin praying so that wherever I go in this city that I would know that no matter where I go, Christ is with me. There are areas of your life that Christ wants access to, entrance into. Would you open up your hearts, your lives, every area of your life to allow him in to transform you in ways that only he can? Let's pray. Loving God, sometimes we are like those disciples and we're headed a direction without you and we don't even know it. We thank you that you meet us on our way even if it's without you, that you are gentle with us, that you love us, that you help remind us. God, open up our hearts and our minds to find you in the midst of everything in Scripture, in the midst of everything in our life. You are holy, you are good, you are present. Jesus, may you open up our hearts to the power of your Spirit, set us free for your purposes. It's in your name we pray and we say together, amen.